continue with a court setting. God is judge, and he is also the prosecutor. He brings the case or the charge and lays out all the evidence he has against Israel through Hosea. So just in case they miss seeing themselves in Hosea's story and in the poem in chapters 1 through 3, for the remainder of the book, God will speak plainly to point out the examples of Israel's breaking of their covenant relationship with him and the consequences that are coming. In this section, as you've seen in your homework, there are many locations and unfamiliar uses of imagery noted in this section, which can be confusing as we're reading and studying on our own. Uh, that's why Bible studies, study Bibles, maps, and commentaries do come in handy, because where the original audience would immediately know the location and what has happened there during Israel's history or the meaning of the images used, we have to work a little for it. So I'll do my best to bring that context out in a couple of places. So as I was studying for this lesson, I came across a quote from Sharon Miller, and she said, idolatry leads to death. Follow the death and it will lead you to an idol. This is why it's the first commandment. And so we know the death of the northern kingdom is coming from week one. We know they have an idolatry or spiritual adultery problem from week two. So this week, we'll follow that path from death to idolatry, seeing more specifics of their lack of knowledge and right worship of God in the northern kingdom's history. And in doing so, we'll be warned of the dangers along the path that are familiar to us. So chapter four, as far as structure goes, this chapter pretty closely follows uh, the cycle of accusation, evidence, and judgments. We're going to start by reading verses one through three. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. And so verse 1 there is a call to all of Israel to listen to the word of God through the prophet of Yahweh, which is Hosea. That seems obvious to us because we are reading the Bible, the word of God. But in the false worship that Israel had created for itself, there were many false prophets trying to keep the ears of the people. Hosea would not have been one of the prophets that they would have wanted to listen to, though they should have. And so verses 1 through 3 cover the first cycle with an accusation of three sins of omission meaning the Israelites are not doing something that they are called to do, and six sins of commission, meaning they're participating in deeds that they are not called to. So the sins of omission there are having no faithfulness, steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. And so there's no faithfulness, which means there's a lack of truth, there's a lack of reliability and honesty. That's between Israel and God, but it's also between Israel's people. There's no steadfast love. Some of your versions may say loving kindness or loyalty. This word that's translated to steadfast love is hesed in the original language. It's used numerous times to describe God's covenant love and faithfulness towards his people. 
They do not reciprocate the faithful love that God shows to them, not even in the least, with their rampant idolatry. And then there's no knowledge of God. So this wouldn't just be knowing who God is, though though they don't even know that. Uh, This would be knowing what he has done in terms of redemption in Israel's history and an understanding of his law that he'd given them that would deepen the relationship between the people and God. To know him is to love him. They do not know him, therefore they cannot love him rightly. And without those three things, a covenant relationship is impossible. And if they're not loving God as they should be, then they're most certainly not loving or caring for their neighbor, which is made apparent by their sins of commission in verse 2. So there is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. That's both physical and spiritual adultery in that word. Without the law of God being adhered and a lack of relationship, the Israelites look like the opposite of the good and holy lawgiver. I mean, that list right there you saw in your homework, it wiped out half of the Ten Commandments, the majority dealing with the horizontal relationships. Because just like us, if our internal hearts are not right vertically with God, our external horizontal actions will surely show it. The wickedness and sin present is serious, but Israel isn't going to listen, as the New Testament writer James would have urged them to, to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. James 1, 21. No, instead there must be judgment, a curse for the breaking of covenant. And this one here deals specifically with the land. It's going to be a drought which would be the opposite of what they thought their worship to the Baals would provide, and a fulfillment of one of the covenant curses in Deuteronomy 28. We don't have time to read those tonight, but I uh, would highly encourage you to go back and read that full chapter of Deuteronomy 28 for further clarity of God's judgments here in Hosea that we're going to see a little of this week, a lot of next week, and Israel's awareness of them, albeit ignored. Verses 4 through 10, that begins with, Yet let no one contend, let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. One commentator pointed out that before the blame shifting can even begin, God begins the next accusation cycle to call those guilty to bear the responsibility of Israel's current state. And first, God makes clear that his dispute is with the priests. We're going to see that all parties in Israel have guilt to bear, but the priests are called out first. The priests were called to be the faithful mediators between God and his people, offering sacrifices on behalf of the people and teaching them the law. The original language there in that verse indicates that there was an element of surprise at this announcement, like the priests would have heard it and went, what? Us? But as Nicole pointed out in week one, hundreds of years prior to Hosea, uh, the first king, Jeroboam, is the one who set up these faux priests that were not of the actual priesthood, who were serving in the temple in Jerusalem, which was part of the southern kingdom. And so remember, Jeroboam had created his own places of worship in Israel's territory and assigned random men to be priests to prevent his northern kingdom from returning to Judah. So it's really not any wonder why hundreds of years later, these priests are miserably failing at teaching the people about God. 
And so, evidence and judgment will alternate in the rest of this section. In verse 5, you see that word stumble. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night. It refers, uh, it refers to, the, to the priests and the, pro- and the false prophets. It's actually much less like a trip. Like we, when we think of stumble, we just think of a trip. <laughs> it's more like a faith plant. And the, the whole point of that is it's impossible for their priests to recover in the state that they're in. So how and why are they so bad? Verse 8 gives us a look. It says, they feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. So the priests were using this syncretistic worship, which is the mixing of worship of God and worship of the Baals in this instance. They were using that for their own advantage. More sin of the people could lead to more sin offerings, which the priests were able to take from under Mosaic law. Another scholar said that they may have even taken God out of it altogether and created a system of indulgences. So the people would bring the priest an offering and the priest would pronounce them forgiven. Either way, the people who were to be instructing Israel how not to sin are desiring, welcoming, and encouraging sin all so they can have some good food. James 5.5 says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So what was meant to supposed to be a serious act of dealing with sin, the priests had made into sport for their own fleshly desires. They are the blind guides leading the blind that will fall into a pit described in Matthew 15.14. They've rejected to follow the law themselves and refused to teach the law to the people. So God rejects the priests. And further on, it says that he'll forget their children. Not only a cutting off of this faux priesthood, but a pronouncement of childlessness on them so their families won't even carry on. Their earthly glory that they're experiencing will be turned to shame. But before the people of Israel even have time to say, see, it's the priests and the false prophets' fault, not ours. God says in verse 9, it shall be like people, like priests. He will punish them all for their ways and repay them for all their deeds. And what the people and priests chase after in their mixed worship will not satisfy. Because, Because they've forsaken the Lord, they'll hunger and be infertile. Curses of covenant disobedience from Deuteronomy 28, 18, which says, Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. Verses 11 through 14 is the next section, which covers the accusation, evidence, and judgment because of their false worship. So drunkenness and their spiritual adultery had dulled their minds and taken away their understanding. Verse 12 says, a spirit of whoredom has led them astray. Right before that, we see they're asking counsel and guidance from physical idols, pieces of wood and walking staffs. Speaking of the Canaanites' idols that here Israel has turned to, the psalmist says, their idols are the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Psalm 115, 
4 through 8. The people of Israel are likened to Gomer in chapter 1, verse 2, when it says that they've left their God to play the whore in verse 12. And then we get to some possibly confusing verses in 13 and 14. So the shrines on top of the mountains where the shade is good, that's, that's what it said because that's the only good thing about the place, uh, they were literally everywhere at this point because this syncretistic worship was rampant. And at the end of verse 13, it says, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. And the word adultery there is the same word used in Exodus 34, 15, and 16, when God, through Moses, warns of the Canaanite women whoring after other gods and leading Israel's sons to whore after the other gods. One scholar pointed out that this is more than likely strictly talking about the spiritual idolatry in the women, because most historical accounts don't include... <clears throat> excuse me, don't include the virgin daughters and brides being involved in the physical adultery in these false places of worship, but that doesn't mean the women are better than the men, as we'll see. They've now been compared to the Canaanite women, leading others away from God. And as we heard last week, these high places did include pagan sexual activity. Men were sleeping with temple prostitutes for the Baals to give fertility to the land. So reading verse 14 might seem like the women are getting a pass compared to the physical adultery of the men. It says, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. So one of the commentators pointed out that I will not punish, uh, that begins that verse, that phrasing is actually better understood in the original language as a rhetorical question. So the verse would essentially be asking, will I not punish the spiritual adultery of your daughters and brides along with the physical adultery of your men? And that closes with a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Because of their dull-mindedness, they were led to engage in false, sinful worship practices, and judgment will fall for both the spiritual and physical adulterers, which is everybody at this point. Verses 15 to 19 end uh, with, in the chapter with a warning of the fall of the false worship along with evidences and judgments again. So verse 15 urges the southern kingdom of Judah not to join Israel in their spiritual adultery. Unfortunately, they will, but thanks to a few good kings that they had sprinkled in throughout their history since the kingdom split, they'll have a little more time before judgment falls on them. And they're told explicitly to not go to Gilgal or Beth-Avon. And so Gilgal was the site that Israel camped at when they crossed the Jordan River to enter into the Promised Land. And they set up 12 memorial stones to remember God cutting off the Jordan River so that the Ark of the Covenant and the people uh, could cross. Unfortunately, Gilgal had become a major sanctuary for this syncretistic worship. Beth-Avon was the negative nickname of Bethel. Bethel meant house of God. Beth-Avon means house of evil. Bethel was 11 miles north of Jerusalem, and it was one of the first two places that King Jeroboam I had made a place of, uh, a place of worship to rival Jerusalem's temple, complete with a golden calf and a different religious calendar. 
And so the false worship at these sites leads God to say in verse 15, don't say as the Lord lives while you're worshiping in these places. This would have been breaking yet another commandment, the third commandment of taking the Lord's name in vain. They're already breaking the first two commandments in these places. They're worshiping other gods. They're fashioning other gods. God's name cannot be attributed or associated with such practices. And the judgment here is in verse 16. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in broad pasture? Israel can't be treated gently in this state. They are no longer like gentle lambs that can be cared for with much freedom of pasture. Instead, they're likened to stubborn heifers. So for those of you who didn't grow up around cattle, um, especially show cattle that had to be prepared uh, for show season, let me tell you from secondhand experience, that to be treated like a stubborn heifer is not a good thing. But it's what Israel chooses again and again. Verse 17, you looked at this in your homework, it holds the first reference to Ephraim the largest and most influential tribe of the northern kingdom. Uh, Ephraim was Joseph's son, Jacob's grandson, which became a tribe of Israel along with Manasseh. And there it says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Joined, again, the imagery of spiritual adultery. They are charmed by the Baals. The last two verses uh, here have the language of being under a spell because they're so far in and over their heads. This false worship has overtaken Israel like a whirlwind, and it's been celebrated by their rulers, their priests. The last judgment is that God leaves them alone. And then we come to chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. So in addition to the religious leaders, the priests, God calls out the king's house and the nation as a whole. The people had become like prey to the priests and kings. The kings and the priests of the past and the present had helped these places of false worship continue and trap the people of God. Mizpah and Tabor were famous places of great victories of Israel's past, but now they've become infamous because of the hundreds of people that their shrines have lured into the, into the worship of Baal instead of God. God promises discipline for all as they bear responsibility for keeping the people from fully recognizing and returning to Yahweh. We're going to read verses 3 through 7. I know Ephraim, and Israel's not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you've played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He's withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. So even though Israel has no knowledge of God, God knows Israel. He sees the fullness of their sin. And while that might not seem like the best news for Israel right now, something that struck me uh, this week at this point was realizing this book doesn't end there. Right? Like, 
It could. The Bible could end there. The Bible could have ended back in Genesis 3. And so because of that, um, uh, I was reading the fall in the Jesus Storybook Bible uh, with my kids a couple weeks ago. And there is a part there in the retelling that says, in another story, it would all be over. And that would have been the end. But not in this story. God had a plan. And so as we keep trudging through the evidences of sin and the promises of judgment cycles, we do need to sit with the weight of the seriousness of sin against God, but we don't need to forget that this isn't the end of the story. Because then and now, now, right now, there's an idea that love is seeing sin and then ignoring it, excusing it, covering it up, or moving on completely without confronting or pleading for change. But God shows us here that love sees and doesn't ignore, but continually exposes the truth of the seriousness of sin in hope of real and lasting change. He sees and knows us. So when confronted with that truth, may we humble ourselves in submission to the God who loves us enough to convict us instead of responding in pride like the Israelites. Verses 6 through 7 at the end of that, though they head out with their flocks and herds to the festivals to worship what they think is God, he's not there because they've polluted the right worship that he requires. He's using Hosea to call out their sin, but their persistent pride and ritualistic, syncretistic worship will be what devours them. Verse 8 begins a different section, focusing on the political problems and foreign relations with a call to blow the horn and sound the alarm because there is danger in both the northern and southern kingdoms. And God promises that Ephraim will be destroyed when punishment comes. And the punishment has begun. Historically, there was an altercation between the two kingdoms during Hosea's ministry. So Israel and Syria wanted Judah to form an alliance with them against the powerful and quick-moving Assyria. But Judah's king refused, resulting in Israel attacking Judah. Judah turned to Assyria for help. Both Israel and Judah were wrong. God promises wrath for Judah as well as Israel. But some of Israel's population was actually deported to Assyria during this time, leaving intact the territory of Ephraim, which is another reason for the specificity we see throughout the remaining of the book uh, of Ephraim instead of Israel as a whole. And God likens his judgment in verse 12 to that of a moth and dry rot, which you saw this week in your homework. It's a slow process of destruction. His judgment may come on quietly, steadily, and slowly, but it will come. And the Israelites might not have noticed those judgments that God was promising until they begin to be completely crushed. And this was just the beginning. We're going to read verses 13 through 15. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he's not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I'll return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. So Judah and Ephraim will both recognize that they have problems because God's judgments are becoming realized by these covenant curses. 
Specifically, Ephraim will go and try to make a peace treaty with the kingdom that's already taken off some of their people. They think that'll bring a fix. And spoiler alert, in case you didn't know, the irony here is thick because Assyria will be used as the vehicle of the northern kingdom's ultimate destruction. So as far as imagery goes in this section, I learned during my time of study that that great king of Assyria in the ancient Near East was often depicted as a lion. And so in verses 14 and 15, when God says, he will be the lion to Ephraim and Judah, he is making a point that it is him that Israel should be fearing the most. He's, in the one, he's the one in control of their fates, and no one can help them escape from him. He'll return to his place and wait until they recognize they need repentance. Okay, take a deep breath. We get to chapter 6, the one big bright spot <laughs> in this week. So this chapter does, it opens uh, with a very uh, bright spot in the prophecies as a plea from Hosea to his people. So Hosea speaking says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So Hosea gives us a picture of the humble repentance that God requires. Israel is not at a point to join in with Hosea, but this holds out hope that one day another people will join Hosea in the words and actions expressed it's a call to return, which is the call of Hosea's entire book. And that word return embodies repentance, the turning from sin and reconciliation, the restoration of relationship. And the same God that was likened to the lion in the previous chapter that tears apart will be the same God that heals and binds up. Not just healing and binding, but revival and resurrection. Israel is dead in their sin. They need to be brought back to life. And those phrases in verse 2, the after two days and on the third day, the original hearers would have just understood those as very soon. But we recognize and hear those words knowing Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. So those of us who have repented and returned have already been raised with Christ. They and we are challenged to know God and to continue knowing God, to remember his covenant faithfulness and steadfast love. Here it's another call to the new and better covenant. Verses 4 through 11, though, show us that Israel is not ready they haven't had enough of their sin and God's judgment to turn back. In both success and danger, they've refused to turn to the Lord. And you can hear the emotion in God's words. He says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I've hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. 
So Ephraim's love there is likened to the dew that dissipates when the sun gets hot, which is not love at all. God won't stop exposing and shining light on their iniquity. And verse 6 should be somewhat of a, a familiar verse as it shows up in other passages in both the Old and New Testament. There's one in 1 Samuel here in Hosea, and there's two in Matthew. You looked at those uh, specifically in your homework. And the point is, is that the sacrifices and offerings that Israel had continued were only merely ritualistic actions separated from the covenant relationship. Israel had thought that they could manipulate God with carrying on their mixed worship like they could fool him. And God makes clear, without right heart motivations, the rituals are completely empty. In verse 7, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So this verse was interesting because some of your translations might say different things. Some say like Adam, while others translate at Adam. And so here are three explanations I found in my time of study. First, the at Adam option would mean that there was some sort of obvious and well-known sin committed in a city called Adam, and the hearers would have remembered and recognized. There are no clues for us to know exactly what that was, which is why some translate it to like Adam, which draws back uh, to the breaking of the Edenic covenant in the garden at the fall. But the last explanation, which was the longest, but it made the most sense to me, instead of the word transgress, instead of the verb transgress there, some translators uh, change that to walk on, which then leads to a play on words of Adam's name, Adam meaning man, and Adama meaning dirt. So the, that would read, like dirt, they walk on the covenant, as in Israel has treated the covenant like dirt. In all three options, the point is another example of evidence that Israel has broken covenant. Verses 8 through 11, those of you who studied Judges might remember reading about the town of Gilead, where Jephthah was originally from and then was called back to deliver the Israelites from the Ammonites. But now, like other towns previously mentioned, it's no longer a place of fond memories. Those have been replaced by the more recent displays of Israel's unfaithfulness that should cause them shame. It says, Gilead is a city of evildoers. That's the same word used in the Psalms to describe the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. They have become enemies of God. The priest's murder at the end of that chapter, uh, it could be metaphorical, like they killed the right worship that God expected, but it could also mean that they were devising plans together to kill their people um, as they were traveling to and fro. It's repeated again, Israel is defiled. They are totally depraved. Another low point. <laughs> but we're greeted with a word in verse one that should lift our spirits again. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel. When. The restoration and healing of God's people is sure in his mind, even seeing all that he sees. But this certain group is still not and will not be ready. They're carrying on like all is well again. They don't consider that just because their twinges of guilt fade over time with more sin that they uh, participate in, that that's not the case with God. Uh, 
the end of verse 2 says, all their guilt remains before his face. And so we're going to break down the four images in the remainder of this chapter. You listed them out in your homework. And so the first one is the heated oven, which is in verses 4 through 7. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it's leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. So this heated oven, it's extremely hot, and it stays hot so that it doesn't have to be touched by the baker which represents an over-encompassing anger that doesn't fade, specifically in the hearts of the political leaders. So the last four of Israel's six kings were assassinated. Instead of recognizing that earthly kings can't save them, they viciously continued trying the next one out instead of turning to the true king, the Lord. In verse 8, we see a cake not turned. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. One scholar pointed out that this was inedible bread. It was scorched on one side from turning to the nations and becoming like them, and the other side was underdone, showing their weak commitment to Yahweh. They had become like the nations instead of a light to them that they were called to be. And then the silly dove in verses 11 and 12 Ephraim's like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. So fickleness is the image we're supposed to see here. They're jumping from their alliance made with Assyria. They're trying to call to Egypt for help. Like calling your former slaveholders is ever a good idea. But just like every time I think the Israelites are outrageously unwise, I'm quick to be reminded that we do the same things in different ways. You see, calling Egypt or going down to Egypt in the Old Testament is meant to take our minds to the sin of self-reliance. Like Abraham returning to Egypt when a famine came instead of asking God in, in Genesis 12, Ephraim's bent on figuring this out themselves, including calling Egypt instead of calling out to God. God says he'll be the hunter that brings the silly bird down and disciplines them. And then a treacherous bow. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They're like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. And so although God had trained them like a father would train a son, Israel rebels and betrays him. They are likened to a warped and flawed bow, which exhibits their weakness and helplessness. They'll become a mockery to the foreign powers that they sought out for protection. But I want to back up and look at two sections we skipped over. First, in verses uh, 9 and 10. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. 
Yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is not seeing himself clearly. He's becoming weaker and weaker, and he's not noticing. In fact, he's refusing to take note. That illustration should make us think of Samson in the Philistines, where his strength is being devoured by Delilah, and he doesn't recognize it. Pride is always an obstacle to repentance, even for us. Verses 13 and 14, Woe to them, for they've strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they've rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. God would redeem them, but their spiritual adultery is outright rebellion against him and his covenant with them. They want their grain and their wine, and they cry out to God in self-destructive ways, like the prophets of Baal did on Mount Carmel with Elijah. They wail for those covenant blessings while on the beds of Canaanite worship. The Israelites have forgotten their God. Their false mixed worship participated in by the priests, the kings, and the people, it makes that obvious. Right knowledge of God leads to right worship of God. They do not know him. They do not know what his law requires. Therefore, they can't worship him rightly. They do not want to listen to the true prophet's words and live. Their sins of idolatry have been laid out plainly. They've served the Baals. They've exalted themselves. They've sought out other kings and other covenants for their rescue. Yet, amidst the proclamations of their sins, God continues to give glimpses of the new covenant. He will relentlessly continue to expose sin for people to see their need of him. Hosea pictures a people broken by their sin and the seriousness of God's judgment definitively returning to him to be raised up on the third day that they may live before him when he will restore and heal his people. When? And we know of the restoration and healing that has been offered in Christ's life, his death and his resurrection. So here are the questions for us in this room tonight. Will we create our own syncretistic, ritualistic worship for earthly glories? Or will we worship with the right knowledge of God and the covenant faithfulness that he requires? Will we ignore the the calls of God's word and prophets in our pride? Or will we humbly receive the word that is able to save our souls? Will we exhaust ourselves trying to fix our problems on our own? Or will we choose to join Hosea in returning, knowing the Lord, and pressing on to know the Lord? Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to come gather with these women and open your word and see it, Lord. I pray that your spirit just transforms our hearts, God, that, that he would give us a moldable heart, a humble heart. And that we would heed these warnings that we see uh, from Israel's history, God. That we uh, would steer clear uh, from our pride, from, from mixed worship uh, that so often uh, tempts us and entangles us in, in our culture. That we would reject that altogether for, 
for pure worship of you. And God, that we would not rely on ourselves, but that we would realize that you are our only hope in every way. God, I thank you that even amidst these hard cycles of judgment, that you give us glimpses of the new and better covenant provided uh, by Christ, his, his life, his death, his resurrection. Lord, I thank you for that. God, I pray for this time of discussion that we're about to head into. I pray that that, that would be helpful and edifying to each of these women. And I pray that now, as we can, when we conclude tonight, as we're halfway over, that they would just continue to press on to know you and that you would continue to sanctify them in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.